Well, good morning again, everybody. And as Deleuze said, we're turning to our final uh, look at the book of Jonah and the character of Jonah and what we can learn from it. And so we've been looking at various Old Testament characters and I've very much enjoyed it. But as we've looked at Jonah, we've discovered that really Jonah is a very flawed character in many ways. And he's portrayed in this book as being very flawed. And I think that's really intentional. As Jonah was either writing this book or one of his friends was preparing this book, they deliberately portrayed Jonah as a flawed character. And the reason for that is because Jonah's not trying to point to himself. He's trying to point to his God and he wants us to realize how great his God is. And that's the message that we want to come away with. In the first session, I spoke about how Jonah teaches us that God is a persevering God. And no matter how hard Jonah tried to run away and get away from God's purposes, God persevered with him. And if God persevered with Jonah, then he's going to persevere with us too. And then in the second section, we thought about how God is a gracious God. God was gracious to Jonah. He was gracious to the Ninevites. Uh, And we see his grace again and again in the book. And thank God, his grace has reached us, sinners though we are, and has brought us into fellowship with him. And finally, I want to think today about how Jonah reveals God as a surprising God, a God who does things that we really don't expect, uh, things that we couldn't have anticipated. And I think that's really important for us to bear in mind as we serve God, because we really do like to get things figured out in life. Even when we've got other people around us, we like to have people figured out, put into little boxes. We know exactly what they're going to do, how they're going to behave, because it makes life a little bit easier when we can predict people. And to some extent, when we study our Bibles and seek to learn more about God, then we start to categorize what God can and can't do, and we make God very predictable and And we think that we know exactly what God's going to do in different situations. And then, bam, completely out of the blue, God does something that we don't expect. He puts us in situations that we never anticipated. He saves people that we never expected to see saved. And sometimes the people that we expected were going to be stalwarts for the faith just drift away. And and we're left astounded. What's God doing? He's doing things that we don't expect. And sometimes those events can even shake our faith. And yet the lesson that God wants us to learn is that we cannot squeeze God into our mold of exactly how he ought to behave. He cannot be forced into our narrow understanding of what God should and shouldn't do and what's right for him to do. And that's the lesson that Jonah learned through the experiences recorded in this book. So let's begin with the first surprising thing in this book. And that is that God reveals himself to really unexpected people. So let's have a look at chapter one of Jonah and listen to the word of the Lord. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, 
and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know in whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so as we look at this first chapter, we start to discover that God actually reveals himself to really unexpected people. But let's, let's think about Jonah. Let's think about who he is. He is the prophet of the living God. You see, Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel had revealed himself to his people, the Israelites, and had pledged himself in covenant to them. He hadn't done that to any other people on the face of the earth. He had taken the Israelites as his own special possession, and they alone, out of all the peoples of the earth, knew his mind and heart because to them had been entrusted the very words of God. They knew God in a way that nobody else could lay claim to. And around them... In the nations round about, the Gentiles, they knew nothing about God. They had no relationship with God because they worshipped idols and gods of their own imaginations. And so it was that this prophet of the one true God, he boards a Gentile ship and he has complete assurance that nobody is going to trouble his conscience on board that ship. He has complete assurance that nobody has any interest in the one true God and he gets on board the ship and he lies down and he goes to sleep. Nobody's going to quote a Bible verse at him and tell him that he's doing the wrong thing. Nobody's going to prod his conscience. Everything is safe for Jonah. And so Jonah, he lies down, a completely quiet conscience, and he goes fast asleep in the innards of the ship in the midst of a storm. But then there's this rude awakening for Jonah. The captain jumps in and shouts at him and asks him what on earth he is doing, lying asleep in the middle of a storm. And what does the captain say? This must have really surprised Jonah. Verse 6. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we, we may not perish. 
The very last thing that he, would, is, that he expected was that he would be called to a prayer meeting on this boat as he is trying to get away from God. And he didn't expect that. And so the sealers, they cast lots to try and find out who it is that's responsible for this misfortune. And they discover that it's Jonah and Jonah owns up and he tells them that he's fleeing from the Lord. And then look at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? You see, Jonah, he seems completely unalarmed by his predicament. He doesn't seem too phased by the fact that he has brought all of these people into this calamity. And we certainly don't read of Jonah crying out to God in earnest that the people would be saved. Rather, it's the sailors that are the ones that are completely alarmed. It's they are the ones that realize how terrible Jonah's plight actually is. They realize that if Jonah is fleeing from the God of heaven and earth, then Jonah is in a really dangerous situation and they haven't got a hope. So Jonah, he asks them to throw him into the sea. Perhaps Jonah would rather die than face the task that God had given him to do. Certainly, he doesn't know what else to do. He asks just to be thrown in. To Jonah's mind, this is the end for him. But the men, they don't display the kind of callous wickedness that Jonah expected. They don't just haul him overboard and say, uh, good riddance to bad rubbish. No, instead they rule furiously to get back to land because they want to preserve his life. They don't want to shed innocent blood. And th consistently they're coming across as being far more righteous than Jonah is. And at last they cry out to the Lord. And they say in verse 14, and they use the covenant name of God. They use God's name in the Old Testament. O Yahweh, O Jehovah, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. And then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And the point is that the text is stressing again and again the divine name because the text wants to get the point across that these men aren't just calling out to a generic deity, an abstract deity. These men are coming into a, an encounter with the one true God, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one that they are encountering. This is the one that they're sacrificing to, that they're making vows to, that they're coming to know. So what can we make of all this? Well, I think what Jonah wants us to see in this encounter is that God reveals himself to people that he did not expect. These are the last people on earth he would have imagined to come into a relationship with the living God. And these are the ones that come away from the account looking righteous, looking God-fearing, looking worshipful. And Jonah comes away from the situation looking like a complete fool who has said in his heart, to all intents and purposes, there is no God. And that's Jonah's situation. It's not something we would have ever anticipated. See, what Jonah's problem is, is his parochialism. It's a big word. It just means he's narrow-minded. He's focused on his own little group of people. He can't see beyond it. He thinks, you know, we are the people. God deals with us and with nobody else, and we can just forget about everybody else. And so it takes him by great surprise when God actually takes dealings with these pagan sailors and reveals himself to them. And I wonder if we aren't affected by the same kinds of problem that Jonah had, this kind of attitude that we sometimes entertain that there's only certain people 
that are likely to get saved, only certain people that are likely to be used by God. And I've spoken about it before and how the situation of these sailors and indeed of the Ninevites put paid to the idea that we can predict who's God, who God's going to save. We cannot do that. Uh, sometimes God will save the most unexpected people and reveal himself to them. But I wonder if we don't suffer from narrow-mindedness and parochialism in other ways. Maybe sometimes we entertain assumptions that we as a church or as a group of churches that we have got some kind of special relationship to God that other people don't have. Maybe we wouldn't even put it as crassly as that, but certainly we think about it. And I've experienced that times in my life. I've come across other Christians and you ask them, so, so where do you worship with other believers? And they tell you, and they tell you what denomination that is. And you think to yourself, oh, and you start to think, well, they're probably very confused and they probably don't have a very close walk with the Lord and then as you get to know them you discover that actually they do have a very close walk with the Lord uh, they've got a much better prayer life than you they've got a greater grasp of God's love than you uh, and they start to put you to shame and you realize that your expectations were completely mistaken because we get so narrow-minded we think that you know we are the people and wisdom will die with us and I'm not trying to say that we should be naive and just think that anybody that claims to be a Christian, we should take that at face value and think that, you know, they are most certainly a Christian. But the opposite danger, the one that we are probably more likely to face, is that experience of Jonah where you think that God revolves around us and that he's got very little interest in other people. But you see, God, he reveals himself to people that we don't expect he works with people that we don't anticipate him to work with. And while we do have a rich and a real relationship with God, we shouldn't start to think to ourselves that other believers don't have that same relationship. And Jonah realized his narrow-mindedness, that God couldn't be restricted to his little group of people. So may God give us the grace to realize that we can't write people off as being uh, unworthy of God, simply because they're not part of our little group of people. Now, if we're surprised by who God reveals himself to, we ought to be equally surprised by who he actually uses. And so in the book, we see that God uses Jonah. He's the reluctant prophet to accomplish his purposes. He could have used anybody. But God chose this one man, this one prophet, not because he's going to be good material, but because he's as stubborn as a mule and God wants to use this surprising person to demonstrate that God chooses people to accomplish his purposes that we would not expect. And we only have to get to verse three in the book before we start to discover how stubborn Jonah is, because as soon as he's told his commission, you know, he's, he's not like Isaiah saying, here I am, send me. No, he's straight off in the other direction. He's saying, do not send me. I'm getting out of this situation. And then after Jonah's thrown into the sea to be judged by God for his wickedness, God spares his life. Uh, and then you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, saying, go to Nineveh, that great city. And we're surprised again that God's still persisting in using Jonah. He could have used somebody else, but the point is he's using this reluctant, 
surprising servant. And again, after Jonah preaches his message, we still don't find that he's any, uh, any better. So he goes outside the city to sulk that God hasn't judged the city. And we'll come to that shortly. But the point consistently being made is that Jonah is thoroughly reluctant and he is very surprising as a choice of instrument. And God consistently does that. God consistently chooses people that we wouldn't expect for him to use. Perhaps none are so reluctant as Jonah, but regularly as unexpected as Jonah. This is typical of God's work. And it comes to preeminent fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because when we come to think about it, the Lord Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah that we would have anticipated. If we had been Jews in the first century or before the first century waiting for the Lord Jesus, we would not have anticipated the one who came. He was the one who was born in humble circumstances. When the wise men come to find the one who has been born king of the Jews, they find one living in very humble circumstances, not in a palace. When he's born, he's there's no place for him in the inn, and so he's laid in a manger at his birth. As he's raised, he's raised in Nazareth, that backwater place, to such an extent that they can say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's not what we would expect for God's anointed son, the one who's going to rule the nations and crush them with a rod of iron, is it? He's not the saviour we expect. And the most amazing thing of all, the most surprising thing of all, is that he is put to death at the hands of the Roman authorities. How could the one prophesied in the Psalms as to be greater than David, ruling the nations, crushing them with a rod of iron, how could he be the one who is crushed by the Roman authorities? It just doesn't make any sense at all. And yet... The Lord Jesus in his death actually disconnects with Jonah himself. The Lord Jesus, he says, very well-known passage in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we start to wonder, well, why is the Lord Jesus making this connection between himself and Jonah? And Jonah being in the, in the fish for three days and three nights and himself being buried for three days and three nights. What's the connection there? And I think the connection is the fact that when people saw Jonah being cast into the sea, they thought, well, there goes God's judgment. That man is being condemned by God because of his disobedience, his willfulness. And surely then people would have been surprised when they saw Jonah emerging again. And they would have known that the fact that God brought him back means that God had a purpose for him. God was using him to proclaim good news of deliverance. And similarly with the Lord Jesus Christ, when people saw him hanging up on the cross, they thought, there is the man condemned by God. There is the man being judged for his wickedness. Of course, they didn't know that it was actually our wickedness that he was bearing. 
But they still got the point that he was being judged by God. He was being condemned by God. Isaiah 53, 4 prophesies it. We considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And yet three days after that, we see the Lord Jesus Christ rising up. And it's God's definitive declaration that this is the one that God has raised up to bring this message of good news and deliverance. And so... There is this very close parallel between Jonah and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is, con- he is condemned, my God, and then raised to new life to bring a message of salvation. And that God would reveal himself in such a surprising way through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and through his death upon the cross, it surprises people to this day. It stumbles people to this day, says Paul. And so the cross becomes a stumbling block that people trip over. How could God's anointed one, how could the son of God be the one who died on the cross? What sense does that make? And yet this is what God was doing all along through the Old Testament when he raised up prophets. It was always the ones that that weren't expected. And God consistently uses ones that we don't expect precisely to confound our wisdom about what God should and shouldn't do. And so God raised up the Lord Jesus to be our saviour, a stumbling block to many people. And it means then that even for us who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, we're very much the same. People that the world wouldn't expect to be chosen by God for great things. People that the world discards and considers nobodies are the people that God uses and within our own spheres of influence, even though we might not think ourselves to be particularly useful or particularly worthy. Nevertheless, God uses us and will continue to use us. But finally, let's think about another surprising thing that God does. And this is the surprise that God sometimes seems to have failed to keep his promises. So let's have a look at Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4. Jonah 3 and verse 4, and we're breaking into the account where Jonah has been delivered from the, the fish, and he's gone into Nineveh. Verse 4 says of chapter 3, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then if we skip down to verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Well, you can only imagine how irritated Jonah must have been. You've got to put yourself in his shoes. And he had just preached this message of condemnation. 
Now, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And so he beats a hasty retreat to a safe distance from the city and waits for the fire to fall from heaven or, or some other great catastrophe to befall the city. And after 40 days, nothing happens. And he starts to feel very aggrieved at this. His prophecy of doom hasn't been fulfilled. And, you know, he, he knows that it's because God has been compassionate. And God has responded to the repentance of the Ninevites. But perhaps he's a bit worried that it's going to look that he has proclaimed a message that hasn't come true. It's going to look bad for him, even if it does look good for God. Now, maybe I'm stretching it a bit to say that Jonah was surprised. Because he does say it after all in chapter 4, verse 2, that he knows God as a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So he knows that God is the kind of God who responds to people's repentance. But at the very least, he is disappointed. He's rather aggrieved that God has decided to, to change this, this action that he was about to perform. And I wonder if we aren't surprised sometimes when judgment doesn't seem to fall. We announce to the world that there is a coming judgment. We announce to the world that the Lord Jesus is coming back. And that they ought to prepare for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course we want people to repent. But for all our talk of the Lord coming back and of the coming judgment, nothing seems to happen, does it? It's been 2,000 years. And everything continues on just the same way as it has since since, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ went back to heaven. And in fact, even in the first century, the Christians were struggling with the same issues. Decades passed and they really didn't know what to do. And so Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, quotes the objections of some people. And he says that unbelievers will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since it has, since uh, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing changes. Why do you keep on talking about this return of Christ? It's not happening. And part of Peter's explanation in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 is that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. You see, even though God seems to have failed his promise for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back, he's actually delaying judgment because he prioritizes mercy. And he wants everyone to come to repentance. That's God's priority. And it may not be our priority. And and we want judgment to come faster. But God's priority is mercy. Sometimes it's not just judgment that seems to have been failed. God seems to have failed to deliver. But sometimes God seems to feel his promises of deliverance for us. His promise of care for us. In Psalm 77, the psalmist, he he asks the question very poignantly. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfeeling love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? He really feels it. Feels like God has given up on his promise. He doesn't see any sign that God is going to keep his word. And sometimes it seems to us that God has forgotten his promises. But as the psalmist continues, he reflects on what God did in the past and he looks at God's many acts of faithfulness. And even sometimes when it took a long time, God was faithful to his people and he bolsters his faith and regathers assurance that God is faithful even when it doesn't feel even when it doesn't feel like God is being faithful. 
And so whether then we're waiting for judgment or whether we're waiting for God's promises of deliverance and care for us, God's people often find themselves wondering whether or not God hasn't forgotten his promises. And yet what we learn from Jonah is that when it seems like God has failed his promises, he hasn't. Actually, God has other priorities in mind, priorities that we sometimes don't line up with. In the case of Jonah, God's priority was mercy in the Ninevites. That's why judgment didn't fall. But because Jonah's priorities were so messed up, all he could worry about was the fact that they hadn't gone up in smoke. And sometimes our priorities get all wrong. Um, sometimes we long for the return of Christ, and rightly so. But the delay is because God is gracious and wants more people to be saved. And other times in our lives when we're looking for God's promises of care, it's because he's got other priorities. We don't always know what they are and may not know until we get to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, but his purposes are good and he'll always do what's right. And so when we look at Jonah, we see that we come into contact with a God who surprises us, a God who doesn't do things that we expect. He reveals himself to people that we don't expect, people like these sailors that we could never have anticipated that God would use. And he uses people like Jonah that we would never have expected. We expect God to choose people that are faithful and righteous and always do what's right. And he doesn't do that. And, and God acts in ways that we don't anticipate. And we expect him to act according to our agenda in our time scale. And he doesn't do that. And as we reflect on this, it should actually humble us before God. Because the God that we serve isn't a God that we can just squeeze into our own boxes, compartmentalize him and say, well, this is what he'll do in this situation and this is what he'll do in that situation because sometimes we just do not know what God is doing. We cannot fathom the mind of God. God's wisdom is infinitely great and good. But in all of this, we do rest confident that even when God doesn't do the things that we expect. He's always a God who does what's right and what's good. And so even when we can't see what he's doing, we trust in him nevertheless. And at the end of the book, as I've said before, it ends with a question. And in effect, the question is, from God himself to Jonah and then to us as the readers, the question is, in effect, did I not do what was right? And as we ponder that question and we think about what God did and see his purposes and how he saved the Ninevites from destruction, then our response has to be, yes, Lord, we do believe that you do what's right. And may God help that uh, same assurance to fill our hearts as we think about what God's doing in our own lives, to always be able to answer God's question with the absolute assurance in our hearts that even if we can't understand what God is doing, we always believe that what he's doing is right. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we have tried to squeeze you into our understandings of who you are and what what you should do. We have failed so often to grasp the greatness and majesty of your wisdom. And we pray that you would help us to be humble, 
Help us to humble ourselves before you so that we wouldn't be proud and assume that we know exactly what you're going to do. But in all of our circumstances, that we would realize that you always do what's right and you always do what's good. And that one day, when in glory, we'll trace your purposes and we will confess that everything that you've done is perfect and good. We thank you, Father, that you do then act unexpectedly. Uh, thank you that you use people like us that we wouldn't even expect that you would use. Thank you for your grace towards us. Thank you that even now you're still saving people that we don't expect. And for the remainder of this year and as we move out of lockdown and seek new ways to share the gospel, may you surprise us and confine our expectations and bring to yourself people that we would never have imagined. We ask this for your glory and for the honour of the Lord Jesus. Amen.